0: Here to uh, welcome Philip Harvick, who's one of the three authors of this uh, new book on taxation taxation, Portuguese Africa, Absolutely. and uh, he will be presenting the book to us all. Over
1: to yeah. You. Okay, William. Thank you. Um, the idea was, after a very modest um, presentation in Lisbon, which was done a few months ago, and which William also also took part um to do a, um another modest presentation here in um here in in London um i would just like to say i i wrote a text but i'll probably mm-hmm. diverge from it as soon as i come across some interesting issues which i want to deal with um the the book itself i'll discuss it a bit later but first i would like to give a kind of short introduction on, on the issue of administration and taxation in Africa itself and then focus a bit more on what the book is trying to do. Now um, the question of taxation and administration, governance especially, which is the word used today in um, in World Bank Linko, um, is an issue which was dealt with by Brotigam, fieldstadt and more in a book they published a few years ago 2008 taxation and state building in development countries this this was a very important book because it for the first time it came up with a kind of theoretical framework to and especially um, also the issue of case studies of what is going on in current-day Africa we're not talking about the past now right in current day Africa and um, they basically held that the focus on taxation is essential for understanding state building and governance. That was the bottom line. And they said that has been ignored for decades. Now, it has been ignored for a reason, or for various reasons, which I'll just go into a bit later. Um, they say that in order to understand the inner workings of the state, because they were focusing, Uh, on developing countries, uh, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, they said, and relations of that state with society, in this case taxpayers, it is essential to look at fiscal policies and practices. And they emphasized, and look, this book came out seven years ago, this this is a very recent book, really, in terms of academic research, Um, little attention has been given to the question of state-building and taxation in the developing countries themselves. Um, and scholars also found that comparative historical and anthropological perspectives on fiscal aspects of development were also lacking. We're not just talking about the question of economic history here, we're also talking about anthropology, which is also an important aspect, which I'll come to later. Um, and there was, a, there is a curious hiatus in studies on taxation from... The 1960s, I'll just focus on Africa here, which (coughs) is what the book is about. Um, Now, if you look at Lord Haley's African Surveys from the 1930s and 1950s, which are very interesting documents, really worth reading, and they are very far ahead of their time, um, because they made a comparative study of different African countries within different empires. And there is a section on taxation, which is in itself... a unique question here. Um, They remain kind of isolated efforts, Um, there was some research on taxation during the colonial period but not extremely elaborate, Um, more on indirect taxation than on direct taxation, which is also a very important issue we'll be coming to, Um, and you have some studies, therefore, on tax systems more linked to the question of budgeting, etc., and general state budget revenues in colonial countries, in, in colonies, um, before the 1960s. Um, you'll probably, if you go further back in the early 1900s, when European countries began occupying Africa and putting in place a kind of modern administration, um, you get a lot of theories which are put forward by fiscal specialists, usually working on on Europe, not working on Africa, many of them French, some of them British too, um, who then begin to look at the question of how can we tax in Africa? How would that work? And the big proof of the pudding for them was How can we move from a system where indirect taxes, a kind of gatekeeper state, are the main sources of revenue and how can we move to one where direct taxes become an important source of revenue? That is, get the population to pay, right? And this in every empire became a very big issue. How are we going to put that in place? Then you get the question of the types of of governance, indirect um, uh, colonial governance or direct governance etc would play a role here, but essentially the question was how are we going to get local people that is Africans to pay direct taxes and the solution was found already in the mid uh, 1800s the first legislation was basically put in place in South Africa of the hut tax Um In fact, Mozambique was the second country where that was invented. Uh, South Africa is 1847, about 1848. Um, Mozambique was in the 1850s. It wasn't put in place, but the legislation was there. Um, This was already before the abolition of slavery and the slave trade. So, um, the question then is this hot tax. We know about the hot tax rebellion, for example, in Sierra Leone in uh, 1898 we know about several tax rebellions for example in South Africa uh, these countries where they tested the HUD tax and we know that there was a lot of discomfort about that HUD tax now the HUD tax is interesting from a fiscal point of view because it was copied from a European tax basically it says says itself HUD tax on, on housing the question was that the African hut, what was the value of the African hut? So how would you decide what the value was? So they, they couldn't do that. They, they had no idea how to estimate the value of that hut. The, the value of the hut was kind of negligible compared to, let's say, a house here in London. So, therefore, they didn't really tax the hut. They taxed the supposed owner of the hut, and thereby it became a direct tax. And many of these early efforts at putting the HUD tax in place did not have any kind of means testing associated with it in most empires. So how then did they come to that amount that was going to be paid? Now in many cases, these taxes came about through occupations, through military occupation of of colonies. Now, that military occupation meant there would be a kind of war tax. The Portuguese cases are emblematic here. Like Angola, Mozambique, and, and Guinea, there were long, drawn-out military campaigns, but they also existed in British and French colonies and Belgian colonies in order to dominate this occupy these areas which were basically given to European countries at the Berlin Conference. Um, So what we have to remember therefore is that the HUD tax which emerged in the end was directly related to the question of occupation and the war tax. For Africans when you talk to them and especially the older ones they still reproduce stories from their ancestors, from their grandfathers etc uh, in the context of those wars and they still remember the fact that those wars imposed heavy penalties on them and these heavy penalties, there was no means testing there if you were rebelling against the colonial overlords you would have to pay in cattle for example in any kind of asset you had, part of your harvests so it was quite a random arbitrary kind of tax that existed Um, from then on you get the hut tax coming into place and you get these hut tax rebellions too in some cases clearly there was some resistance against it and Lord Haley in his African survey says there was a kind of natural cycle which occurred moving from that hut tax into the personal tax, into the poll tax Right. so A personal tax meant that the personal tax was means-tested and was related somehow to the income these people gained, these people earned. And that would be a kind of individual tax. From the personal tax, we would move kind of to an individual tax whereby every African um, citizen or or non-citizen in many cases that had a special citizenship, native citizenship, um, would then be taxed. Um, Now this, in many cases, didn't happen. This natural cycle from this hut tax to the uh, personal tax didn't always take place. However, it did take place in many colonies, as he records in the 1950 survey, where he says that quite a few colonies had already moved to introduce some kind of personal tax system. Um, The Portuguese case is not an exception. Uh, like Mozambique and and Angola, moved to a kind of personal tax, Angola in the 1920s, uh, late in the 1910s, and and Mozambique a little later. Um, Also in Mozambique there is a different situation because part of the colony was occupied by companies, charter companies, who then by the 1940s were kind of integrated into the colonial administration and therefore by the early 1940s colonial administration had control over these areas now where it didn't happen was in in Guinea in Portuguese Guinea, now Guinea-Bissau it did not happen there until very late in fact after the African survey came out, the second one it only occurred in the course of the 1950s Uh, it was in fact specially mentioned in the African survey, that it was one of the few colonies that hadn't yet made that transition. Now, one of the issues that is often discussed in economic history is the settler and extraction colony. So we can identify Angola and Mozambique as settler colonies, especially after 1945, but already to a certain extent before that. But Guinea Guinea wasn't. Portuguese Guinea was not a settler colony. Um, By the 1950s, the census clearly showed that there were just about 8,000 that this is of the 505,000 people living there officially about 8,000 people living there who weren't native Guineans and of that group the largest contingent was Cape Verdean and a very small contingent was European. So I mean that clearly wasn't a settler colony by the 1950s, 1960s when the big influx of um, immigration from Europe especially Portugal got underway in, um, in Mozambique and, um, and Angola um, you had hundreds of thousands of immigrants European immigrants living there so they really became settler colonies. Now it has been argued by economic historians that there would be a difference in the way taxation worked in the case of settler colonies and of non-settler colonies and the argument would be that in non-settler colonies administration would be more simple would be much more reduced and would be much more focused on pure extraction and that in the settler colonies that would not be the case because of course the settlers themselves were also involved in that process so it was kind of shared responsibility and the argument therefore runs that if that is the case then, of course, you have income from direct taxation on settlers. So, therefore, um, this is not in the book, of course, because that comes a little later, but from the 1950s and 60s, late, late 1940s, early 50s, there are lots of tax reforms in these colonies, like Mozambique and Angola, which begin to follow a European pattern. Namely, they're almost copied from... Portuguese fiscal legislation and that is because they start taxing the immigrants let's say the settlers which become which becomes an important source of income for the state because they prosper of course they have land etc they cultivate it, they produce stuff industry gets going from the 19 early 1950s you get the uh, planos de fomento the economic planning which had already been carried out, for example, in French and British colonies. Uh, I only have to remember the colonial acts, colonial welfare act exactly, of 19, late 1920s, 1940s, Fidesz in the, in the French case, where you get a lot of investment in the colonies. That only occurred in the Portuguese case in the early 1950s. Most of that went on infrastructures. But that meant that suddenly a lot of money came in from metropolitan sources which had never come in before. So if you then start looking at budgets, you see therefore that direct taxation begins, certainly native direct taxation becomes, to be, becomes kind of smaller in comparison to the other sources of income. So there is a kind of natural cycle within these colonies, these settler colonies, whereby A shift occurs initially from the transition from HUD to personal tax. The income, the revenue from direct taxation begins to increase, let's say in the 1920s. Then comes the crisis, the world crisis in 1929-30, which has an incredible impact on incomes, of course. These products that the farmers produce in Africa begin to lose revenue they find it very difficult to come up with the money in order to pay the taxes and the whole tax system begins to go into a kind of crisis. So therefore these governments begin to look for other ways in order to get more money in and that is not always direct taxation, they try to get it through indirect taxation, through licensing and all kinds of ways Uh, they try and get money in Um, Of course, no money is coming in from metropolitan sources because there is basically no money because there is a crisis on, right? So, just kind of the external funding begins to dry up, and they have to seek all kinds of alternatives. Uh, Introducing, for example, uh, new forms of cultivation. The case of Mozambique is well known. North Mozambique, you get cotton cultivation, kind of forced upon the population. They try to tax that too, etc. In Guinea, they try to produce rice. Um, and export it but then uh, Portugal doesn't want to import rice because it is already producing rice and it, it's all quite a tangle in in Angola which is a very complicated case you get diamonds being discovered in the 1920s which become an, a, a gradually an important source of income quite a few um, uh, um, studies have been made about that in Mozambique of course you've got these charter companies which also get quite an amount of money in which part of it flows into the state coffers but not all of course because they control these areas Um, so you have quite a a mixed bag situation but the fact is that we have therefore chronologically a a situation whereby you get a war tax first, you get a hut tax then you get a personal tax in many cases then you get the world crisis, begins to hit, hit these colonies very heavily uh, and interestingly, in the Portuguese case, um, in 1926 there is a coup and a new state comes in, the Estado Novo. And the Estado Novo, especially from 1928 onwards, when Salazar um, begins to control fi- financial aspects and later becomes prime minister, um, through all kinds of legislation introduces the idea that the, the colonies will lose their administrative independence. That is, they've had quite a free reign during the Republic from 1910 to 1926. The case of Angola is the example used by the coup, the military coup uh, uh, members to curb any autonomy that the colonies would have because you have Norton de Matos who becomes High Commissioner and he is a high spender, he's seen as a high spender. It ends up with a big deficit and he is accused of having caused irreparable damage to the financial situation in Angola and landed of course the central government with a big problem how are we therefore going to pay these debts, these were private debts especially to British financiers, British banks how are we going to pay these debts? So the whole question then from 1926-28 onwards becomes the balanced budget now the balanced budget would of course be very severely tested a few years later, when the world crisis comes along. And how can you balance a budget when you have a great difficulty getting taxation in? Now, what is interesting is that you'll see in, in, in the book it becomes very clear that the pressure on peasants and on farmers to come up with the money for direct taxation increases greatly. Because there's an enormous pressure from Lisbon on these administrations to balance the budget. So how do you do that? You can't get money in from outside as I said, there will be no subsidies from from Lisbon Um, and you have somehow to put pressure on those who can produce something on a tradable good which you can sell. Now what happens strangely is because many peasants were unable to pay with money the initial system, which was allowed in the early 1900s, whereby they paid in kind, which then reverted soon after to money, was again introduced, a kind of form of leniency, whereby they could uh, pay their taxes in kind in the 1930s. For example, with cattle, um, with their own production. I mean, It was an interesting changed there into a kind of barter economy and then the state would of course sell these uh, um, goods on, on the market and try and get the money in um, sometimes they weren't able to pay when they should have paid like in the, um, in the beginning of the dry season um, and then the government allowed them to pay a little later stuff like that but That leniency was, of course, very very limited most of the time. So the pressure was on, and you see that as that pressure is put on, the cases of um, Angola, for example, show that that pressure failed. It didn't work. Um, They didn't manage to get that big kind of African peasantry to come up with the money. Um, The case of Mozambique is different because of that question which I came upon before, integrating these uh, charter companies into administration so you see in the graphs that therefore the income from taxation goes up state income from taxation goes up because these company areas concessions are included and therefore it flows directly into government coffers Um, but the case of Guinea shows that they did manage they did manage to increase the amount of tax, direct tax revenue. Just imagine what kind of pressure that must have been on these farmers to come up with the goods. And what in the end happens, we can all guess, people vote with their feet. So what you get from the late 1920s, early 30s onwards, is an increasing number of people who try to evade taxes by any means possible, because the pressure is on, and begin to emigrate uh, or will remain for a certain period in neighboring countries and then come back when the situation uh, becomes slightly more favorable or move between districts, going from one district where tax could be uh, higher to another where it could be lower. And what is very interesting is that administrators themselves begin to compete for taxpayers, so, you get an internal competition within these colonies whereby more taxpayers in a certain administrative area is, of course, a plus for an administrator. It's more income, right? And also, it means that when more direct tax money comes in, the administrator gets a higher percentage or gets a higher amount of money. Um, administrators got a certain percentage for their efforts to get direct taxes in now this, this now becomes a very interesting issue when Enrique Galvão famous Enrique Galvão who became very famous in 1960s because of some rebellious acts against the Portuguese government where he hijacked a ship in 1961 the Santa Maria he was a great supporter of the 1926 coup ideologically he totally supported it Um, however by the 1930s he had already had a stint in Angola as governor of Uila, and by the 1930s he was an inspector because the Portuguese government set up uh, the colonial inspection which did not exist as such, you had a financial inspection You had some other small inspections that were done. Um, The the Treasury was the main one at the time. But in 1933, there's a new law, uh, Reforma Administrativa Ultramarina, which then begins to change the game. A very important law, which puts in place all kinds of measures, including the inspection, the colonial inspection. Now, he becomes a colonial inspector, he was a military man, he becomes colonial inspector and he does the first, what ends up by being the first big inspection report on Angola now that inspection report is a fascinating document for anybody who's interested in colonial administration or interested in taxation in this case, which of course we're talking about here um, it was a crucial point, which I don't think at the time people realised but with hindsight it was because he went into just about every administrative area in Angola, right? He did his inspection in Angola in '37. Uh, the report can be found in the colonial archives in, in Lisbon. And that report is scathing. Now, of course, these reports were not published. But now we can access them, of course. But the report circulated, clearly did, because one finds several comments in other documents about it. And I think the report must have shocked and, and um, uh, created a lot of concern among metropolitan policymakers, because it basically showed that, one, a big colony like Angola had not been administratively occupied, as one says in Portuguese, ocupação administrativa. That is, the government said it had, But he found it hadn't. Many areas didn't even have an administrator present. They weren't even there. So, I mean, in certain administered districts, the taxes were not even being collected. And he found in others, and I'll give you one very interesting example. He was talking to an administrator, kind of off the record, but he put it in his report, who said, he asked him how he collected taxes. And the man said, ''I have an enormous district.'' But the only thing I have is a mule in order to get from A to B. I don't have a car. The roads are terrible. I can walk, but the mule maybe is a little quicker. And what, what do I do? I have an enormous district. So if I do the enrollment of all the family units right in that district, and I write that down, and then I only manage to collect taxes from part of them, I'm going to be in big trouble with central government in Luanda and with the government in Lisbon. Another thing is, too, that if he didn't collect 70% of the taxes of the households he had enrolled, then he wouldn't get his percentage. So what did he do? He said, I only go there where I know I can collect the taxes. Now, the conclusion there is very clear, I mean, there is a lot of literature about this um, were colonial governments out to maximise tax income? This just proves that maybe they were, but in practice they didn't manage to do it and the Portuguese case, this for example in Angola, is one good example. So what did he do? He selected those households where he knew he could collect the tax when he went along later, because you first do the enrollment and then you collect the taxes later. And then, of course, easily got to 99.9% of the households that he managed to get the taxes from. And triumphantly, he would present his report and he would get his percentage and everybody was happy. Um, He was very critical, Galvão, of the way taxes were raised because he says the way... Administration is doing it, and this is not just the guy with the mule, but the way taxation is doing it is creating a lot of pressure on families because he says, by it not generally being properly means tested, a lot of families had to pay high taxes which they could not really afford based on their farm income, etc., and any sort of supplementary income they couldn't afford. So he said. Basically, what that was doing, together with forced labor, another issue which is also addressed in the book, and forced crop cultivation, is that families, the African family, is under threat. And he added on that, which is a very common observation in the 1930s, not just in Portuguese colonies, is there was a demographic problem. So many people were leaving the colony. They were going to neighbouring colonies like Angola, like the Congo, and trying to escape the forced labour, the forced cultivation and the tax regime. So he said, if we go on like this, um, Angola will in the future, in a few decades, not have sufficient people to produce anything and certainly not to get any taxes out. He was very worried about that. So he kept warning in this document about the risks for... Portuguese administration. Now this theory which he kind of sets out in a very very simplified fashion in thirty-seven, is then again worded but in a very different and a much more radical form in 1947 when he is invited to testify to basically give a report before the colonial committee of the National Assembly in Lisbon of course this is a dictatorship but still there was a National Assembly, of course, there were perfunctory elections, and he gives this very, very long report which caused enormous shockwaves in in Lisbon. At the time he was an MP for Angola, and this caused enormous shockwaves in Lisbon. In fact, I noticed when I was looking at um, the archives, for example, the British archives here in the National Archives, that um, that report immediately after it had been presented in the assembly was already known by the embassy in in Luanda the British Embassy in Luanda they already knew about it and he gave a short the, the ambassador and the consul gave a kind of short resume of, of that report and they say it was absolutely scathing report was extremely critical she said basically Portuguese administration was a sham it wasn't working well uh, it was causing serious problems in the, in the colonies um, he had already warned time and time again about the risks and again repeated that taxation was one of the serious problems because people, and this is very interesting, people didn't understand the tax regimes. This is a very interesting observation. Um, in, in what I think is probably one of the best studies on, on taxation in in Africa, in colonial and post-colonial, um, Africa. Um, let's I'm just. I was looking for the title, which I just forgot. Um, wait a minute. No, I was looking. Here we are. By Janet Reutman, uh Was published. Uh, she's an anthropologist. Was published in in two thousand and five. Fiscal disobedience. Anthropology of economic. Regulation in Central Africa, which is about the Chad Basin, in which she talks about the, the meanings of taxation. How is taxation seen by African taxpayers? And she goes back to the colonial period in the Chad area and looks forward into the post-colonial period. This is because of a tax kind of rebellion in the 1990s, which her work focuses on. And, and she also talks about this question of tax not being understood So how, then, is direct direct taxation understood by these taxpayers? This is a very important point, and it's very interesting that a person like Galval focuses on that and insists that if people don't understand how they're being taxed and why they're being taxed and why the levels are as they are, we have a serious problem. And he said that in Angola was a a fundamental problem. Now, he writes the same report um, one year later about Mozambique the minister asks him to write another report, he writes one about Mozambique which kind of repeats the same ideas too, Mozambique he didn't work on on Guinea, he does refer to it occasionally, but he didn't work on that so what, what we have here is a tax system which is clearly in crisis and he says for all the efforts that are put in to get tax out and here comes a point which is very interesting how much time did administrators spend on getting the taxes out collected? More than seven or eight months a year, they are busy trying to collect tax and rolling households and taxing them and getting the taxes out. He said, that is an extraordinary amount of time they're spending just on that issue. The ones who were really doing the job weren't the administrators, but were the so-called chefs de poste. So under the administrator had a big district, you had Chef de Poste was cut up in several sub districts, and the chef de Poste was then, certainly after the nineteen thirty-three law, uh charged with tax collection. Doing the enrolment, so they they had to do the difficult work, right? They had to do the tough stuff, tough, tough stuff. And they have to get the taxes out. Um that clearly one therefore was an enormous pressure on the whole administrative apparatus. And you can, you can begin to work it out in terms of cost-benefit. How much does it cost to get taxes out, and how much taxes do you get in? I mean, this was a, a kind of mental sum, mental arithmetic that Galvao was making. Because what we see, and this is, I think, the big proof of the putting on taxation, which we tried to come up with here in the book, is how many people were being taxed? So if you look, and this is a problem because if you look at the archives, it's very difficult to find these numbers in a proper chronological fashion so you can compare over a longer period of time. So let's say from the moment you get the hut tax and then the personal tax in many of these colonies, can we count count the number of people that are being taxed? Now we've been trying to do that and there is a very simple conclusion... The number of people that is being taxed over that period, from let's say the early 1900s to the late 1940s, is declining. The only colony where it goes up in the 1930s is Mozambique because of this issue of including the charter companies. But basically, in almost all colonies, that number is going down. It remains after you introduce personal tax; it goes up. And then soon after, it kind of flattens out and then begins to go down again. So, the number of taxpayers should basically go up if there is any kind of demographic growth. Which of Galvao was, of course, contesting because he was saying so many people leaving in colonies that the number will not be going up, right? You keep losing taxpayers to other colonies. So, The the administrative apparatus is constantly growing from the mid-1915, 1920 onwards, it begins to grow and grow and grow. Then in the 1930s, it begins to slim. But the fact is, there are far too many uh, people in administration to justify the results of tax collection. This is the kind of conclusion he comes to. This is, of course, very interesting because if if we then see what happens to the tax system um, from the mid-1940s onwards after this book basically ends its chronological period, um, it becomes clear that the message was kind of gradually being understood and that tax reforms were necessary. So what this book does is basically give you the perspective of the beginning of the introduction of all kinds of direct taxes in these colonies and preparing you for going through the crisis, the world crisis, economic crisis preparing you for what is going to come after, namely in the late 1940s, the tax reforms so by the time this book ends it is clear that the tax systems that have been put in place are not efficient and are not really working now there is another issue here which is also very worrying because What we try to do here, we don't just focus on taxation. We want to embed the question of taxation in administration. Leigh Gardner, for example, in her book about the the British Empire, also compares a number of colonies. But her analysis is not exactly embedded in analysis of administration itself. It looks more at the question of the extraction of taxation. Administration is there. But in order for you to understand how important taxation is and how it works, we have to look at administrations. What was happening in many colonies and especially in the Portuguese colonies was that it was very difficult to convince people to work as an administrator or as chef de post in the rural areas. In fact, you didn't get any extra money as an administrator or chef de poste if you worked in a remote rural area. You didn't get any extras. In fact, being sent to certain rural areas, especially to frontier areas, was seen as a demotion. There was a whole circus going on within these colonies of appointing administrators and those who caused any kind of displeasure ...to the central government in the, in the colonial capitals... ...was sent to a kind of far outpost... ...where he was totally forgotten. Nobody cared about him. He sent his reports in as he had to. He collected his taxes, but nobody cared about him. right? And, and he felt, of course, very badly um, treated. And therefore, perfunctorily, in a perfunctory form... ...would fill in all these forms and send in the reports usually, as Galvao noted, copying the report from the previous year with the same figures and uh, with the same results. So, I mean, you get this paper trail, which Ann laura Stola often talks about, is therefore very interesting, but what is in this paper that is kind of reported? He says, basically, these statistics are not to be believed. They, they are not reliable. So when we go into the archives and try to follow that paper trail we have to be very, very, very careful because you don't know whether what's in that report is actually happening, is actually the case or not. So you have to constantly cross-check, which we did, of course, because, for example, there are official statistics which appear in official yearbooks from the late 1920s onwards on most colonies, um, that produce and reproduce these data, which are somehow collected by the colonial central governments. Um, it is interesting that these statistics then are often corrected years later. So I mean, there is then an overview in a later yearbook of the previous years, and then the figures are different, while correction's constantly going on, right? So you have to constantly co- check these data. And you have to begin to add up stuff too because if you manage to get your hand on some, for example, colonial reports by the colonial governors who then talks about taxation at some point somewhere in his report and you begin to compare them to what you see in these official yearly year, yearbooks then often there is a discrepancy. There are quite a lot of differences. Um, so, just to... wind up. Um, What we were trying to do essentially was focusing on taxation within administration not just taxation as such, it is not just a simple quantitative uh, exercise, it is a quantitative and qualitative exercise Um, however, in the early 1990s, uh, Jill Dias, who unfortunately died a few years ago, who was a very important um, uh, researcher and, and, and um, protagonist in African studies in Portugal, she said in one of her um, publications that um, despite the existence of extensive archival sources, colonial administration in its broad sense was one of the most neglected aspects of the Portuguese presence in Africa. This is 1992. This is very recent, therefore, not that many years ago. In fact, only since the 1990s has administration been in Portuguese, former Portuguese Africa, been studied in any kind of, of detail. Um, there is an enormous archive in Lisbon, which has got 25 kilometers of of, document, of documentation, um, which is an extremely useful source. However, the archive after 1974, when there was a revolution in Portugal and the new state fell, was kind of split up in different deposits all over Lisbon because the colonial ministry, of course, disappeared, and only bit by bit have these parts been found and put together. Now, unfortunately, the archive hasn't got sufficient people in order to um, do inventories. in nineteen In the mid nineteen seventies, the archive had about eighty people working there. Now it's got about fifteen, which is clearly insufficient to make inventories of these colonial documents. So what basically happens is that we, as researchers, we have to do the inventories. This is exactly what we're doing. Um, and it is often very complicated to find reports in these very kind of rudimentary inventories that exist. So this research has only been possible because we've all, all three of us, have been working on, in the archives for decades. In my case, I've been working in the archives for, for more than 25 years there in Portugal, and um, still a lot of surprises come up. So this is, let's say the result of, of many years of archival research. And it's not finished, clearly. More can be said about this period, and there's certainly a lot more about the period that follows. Now, just a one note on the Portuguese case. Um, if I, I have now answered probably the question, why does this book come out now, the reason for that is obvious, because it's taken a long time to get here. Now, what is interesting is that the three of us came to taxation not because we were doing taxation, we weren't focusing on taxation at all. Um, Marcel, Santos and Alexander Case have been working, for example, working on forced labour um, and came across taxation and discovered that taxation was very important. In my own case, I was, more, I was looking more at the question of administration, uh, from a political, scientific and anthropological point of view and found that taxation was very important and we got together interestingly this this book is, uh, is the result of a European research project which was called Oresko which was about the question of slavery and forced labour um, so this book is the outcome of that project although of course Many changes were made later. Um, The project ended in in, in 2012. Um, It was called Slave Trade, Slavery Abolitions and Their Legacies. It was a European-funded project um, funded by the European Commission for the seventh framework program. And there was a small work package which included the question of forced labor and taxation in Portuguese colonies. And this is then basically the outcome of that. Um, the interestingly recently a book came out which was a report from 1630, 1630 on Angola so I'm saying this is not the only book on taxation related to Portuguese colonies although this 1630 is a bit earlier than this period which is called The Livro dos Baculamentos, que os sobers deste reino pagam a sua majestade, Baculamentos being taxes, that is, the book of taxes that the chiefs, the sobers, in Angola paid to the crown in Lisbon. And it's a report which they found in in the archives um, in, in, in Angola and decided to republish it. because It's never been published at all. And it contains an enormously long list of chiefs with their names and what exactly they paid into state coffers. Now, this is because in Angola, of course, as an exception to the rule, the Portuguese had basically conquered part of coastal areas in Angola, around Luanda, around the Congo, etc. And they managed to um, subjugate chiefs into paying taxes. So, I mean, this question of direct taxation is not an issue which is just related to the HUD tax. It already existed before, and there are documents that go to prove it. Um, the, the question here, for, here, therefore, is that, and here I must mention, of course, William Clarence Smith, who in the 1970s um, produced what we could say is one of these seminal works on, on empires, called it the Third Portuguese Empire, it has stuck since then. It has remained the third empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, looking at the economic history of Portuguese colonies in the modern period, let's say from late 1800s to um, the, the mid-1900s to the end of the colonial period. Of course, the, the, the new state was a very important focus here. Um, that book... Um, basically set out to show, um, and William can correct me here, there's a big debate here uh, going on at, at, at the time about whether em- the Portuguese empire made economic sense or not. Um, and he kind of argued, yes, it did. And a predecessor, um, Hammond, he had said that, looking at Mozambique in this case, that it was more an ideological, political exercise than an economically... Um, motivated one Um, I don't think this book is going to choose between these two options but it's going to add on another layer to say that um, it was also an economic financial exercise but it was full of contradictions as you see by what I said about Galvao's very critical reports just one example of of the situation uh, that emerged Um, the the question of taxation has kind of been at the crossroads of, of various issues, like sovereignty, citizenship, resistance, social engineering, monetization, rent-seeking, corruption, accounting, and policing, just to name a few, right? It's, 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 an, it's an issue which keeps coming back here. Now, in, in his book, um, we focused more on the question of indirect taxation, on customs duties, etc., cetera. And um, it did, though, provide a lead for us to go further and look at the question of direct taxation, which is essentially the goal of this book. Um, naturally, this is not this is a first book on this issue in the Portuguese case. Um, it is not a linear exercise, it is not, I would say, um a an exercise which is just using one approach to the issue of taxation. The book, in that sense, is uneven, you could say. There are different approaches in it applied to the question of taxation from different perspectives. Um, and it doesn't provide you with a single polished unitary view on the issue, right? We just try to, from our own perspectives, to work out how administration and taxation functioned. Um, What we need is that other people take up this issue too, right? that taxation is looked at. In the British case, clearly, um, Frankema, um, uh, Leigh Gardner, um, Bush and Moldby and some others have been... uh, Sean Redding, for example, in the case of South Africa, have been looking at the question of taxation. In the French case, there is some work, but it's still limited. In the Belgian case, it's very limited, in the German case, I'm not sure what has been produced on the short period they were in, 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 in Africa. And in the Portuguese case, very little had been done so far. So, I mean, this is kind of an attempt to put, um, to infuse the debate with the Portuguese case. Um, of course, we've only focused on um, on, here you have the contents of the book. We've only focused on um, Angola, Guinea, and Mozambique. Um, Cape Verde and Tome are not included. They're, of course, very different. They're insular colonies where the whole question of taxation and an issue I haven't hardly mentioned, but other people can take that up, um, the question of race, for example, the indigenato, etc., which kind of defined different kinds of taxpayers... You had the indigenous Africans who didn't have Portuguese citizenship who had to pay certain taxes, and you had others at Portuguese citizenship which did have to pay taxes, the had tax, for example. Um, the, As you see, the chapters are... The first part of the book is about the question of rural producers and taxation in different colonies, especially Angola and Mozambique then we look at the question of how taxation had to be negotiated between the state, the colonial state and taxpayers in, in the broad sense, comparative sense um, and here we look for example in the, in the second part at case studies, namely at Angola the question of evasion, I talked about. Um, all kinds of compulsory measures which were put in place and how this related to the building of the state. Then we have the case of Mozambique, the peasant tax. Mozambique, this is about the introduction, forced introduction of cotton cultivation in northern Mozambique in an area not really suited to cotton cultivation and all the consequences that occurred. Um, the question of a fiscal breakdown, The the, the This is basically about the contradictions within administration which has different policies and they kind of clash. You introduce a certain crop but then you can't get the taxes out and it becomes a very complicated situation. And in the last chapter, there's a focus on on Portuguese Guinea and just what I said about the question, for example, of the military campaigns and how labour, crop cultivation, fiscal policies interact and the question of fiscal revenue and and economic development. So it is quite a a varied bunch of issues. So what we hope is that other people will take it up and we'll also look at the question of taxation. Some interesting studies have been done recently. I'll just mention one on Angola by Conceição Saunertu, who produced a very interesting PhD thesis, which she's soon going to publish, on the Planalto, on the case of Huambu, and administration and how the Portuguese set up administration there and spends quite a few pages uh, discussing the question of, of taxation, for example, linked to the question of administration. I'll stop here.
0: All right, well, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> thank you. thank you. And I think, Malin, you had an advance copy and you have some comments to make, or shall we just... Perfect. um, <laughs> um,
2: um there's not much to follow uh, on uh, what Philip has said Um, some of the people here are students, yes? not students students. Um, First of all um, I think that all three of these authors have um, been working what I would say at at the grassroots level if, if that's right They've been looking at what was actually happening in the um, remote rural areas, um, out in the countryside, rather than at the theory of taxation, what what the people in Lisbon thought was happening. Um, You can read reports of, of governors, of districts, who who will um, say what they think is happening or what they want Lisbon to believe is happening what the research in this book is doing is going right down to the bottom to ask what is happening on the ground what is really happening and I would in um, particular refer to one of the chapters written by Alexander Keyes in in which he looks at what is actually happening out in the districts of Angola um, where the administrators, the Chefish de postal as well as the more senior administradores, um, are clearly not in control of their districts. They can't take an accurate census. They can't pursue taxpayers who fall behind with their taxes. They can't control the movement of the populations from one district to another. Um, and um, an image of a colonial system which exists on paper but in practice is not really functioning It comes very clearly out of this chapter and I think anyone who is um, actually interested in what colonial government really meant on a day-to-day basis needs to have a look particularly at that, at that chapter but also the, the major chapter by Philip and also Marcel Santos's chapter on northern Mozambique does something of the same thing. Um, it, it shows that the Portuguese colonial administration was um, not really in control of, what it, uh, of, uh, um, of its colonies. Um, in Guinea, for instance, as in Mozambique, a lot of the tax collection was handed out to um, commercial companies because the colonial administration itself was unable to, to carry it out. And it's, um, it's that kind of detail which I think is very important. It also comes out very clearly um, that the purpose of taxation um, was not very clearly articulated. Why tax people? What is it you hope to achieve by taxing? You might think that's obvious, but actually it's not. And again, what comes out of this book is the confusion that um, um, existed in what was the purpose of taxes. On the one hand, levying taxation was a symbol of state power, um, and that is particularly important to brought out in the case of, of Guinea. Um, you couldn't really claim to be in control of your colony unless you were able to tax people. So it was a symbolic act. It was also obviously to try and raise revenue. Um, But it's much more than that. Um, The idea of taxation was also to encourage, um, uh, to create a pool of labour. Try and force people out of the peasant economy into the cash economy. Um, and so that in a sense this is an, a, a civilizing or if you like modernizing enterprise in which taxation is the instrument whereby social change will be brought about. Now whether that ever happened is another question but that was certainly one of the objectives. Um, promoting consumption um, was uh, um, an important aspect. Um, of the monetarisation policy. Um, A lot of taxation, of course, was not the handing over of money at all. In the Portuguese colonies, as in other colonies, taxation was often um, assessed in terms of certain uh, days of labour a year, which um, individuals had to Um, give to the state or had to give to private concessionaires uh, in order to fulfil their tax obligation. So taxation could actually mean um, working for um, uh, uh, the state or for a private company um, and not just the the handing over of of, of money. and that was again, one of the purposes of taxation, was to try and um, bring people into um, labor, um, the labor market. Um, and these objectives of taxation um, often fight with each other. Um, it's not entirely clear um, what the colonial government, at different periods, uh, what were its priorities? Were they revenue? Were they getting Africans to produce cash crops? where they're getting Africans to sign on as labourers. Um, and, um, it, 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 and these were uh, sometimes a contradictory objectives. And this, of course, reflects the contradictions in, uh, at another level in what the Portuguese empire was really for. What was it about? Um, and um, Philip has already mentioned this issue as to whether... Um, the Portuguese empire (coughs) was envisaged as a settler empire, an extension of Portugal, if you like, or whether it was an extractive empire in which um, um, uh, resources would be extracted from Africa uh, to um, assist the the Portuguese colony at home. And then uh, perhaps my final uh, point is is that what comes out really very clearly from these chapters um, is that um, the Portuguese became, uh, particularly in the area of labour recruitment and taxation, very dependent on um, their African collaborators. And uh, this is an area which of course is um, uh, ideologically quite difficult to tackle. Um, because the idea that the significant elements of the African population collaborated with the colonial regime is a difficult issue to face, but it's a very important one. And what I, what I uh, got out of these um, uh, chapters was the importance that <clears throat> um, uh, chiefs at um, um, uh, were, uh, <coughs> the collaboration of chiefs how important this was for the colonial authorities. Um, There was an example, um, I think in in, I forget which chapter it is now, of of, um, a Portuguese colonial administrator having to admit that unless the chief um, uh, helped him, uh, he wasn't able to collect tax at all in a particular area. But it's not just chiefs, it's also the cipares, the um, black police, um, who are much more than just police. They, as pointed out in the book, they are interpreters, um, interrogators. Um, They are the people who actually, in many cases, go out into the villages to count people or to count huts. Um, And you have this very important um, uh, cohort of African um, assistants and African collaborators um, on whom, in fact, the whole system depends. So uh, what I really got out of this book was um, a vivid picture of what colonial rule actually meant on a day-to-day basis and and how um, confused it was and how, in many respects, ineffective it was um, in in doing what the people at the top, what the people in Lisbon uh, wanted and what they thought was happening.
1: Thank you. Thank you
3: very much.
0: Well, um, we have a, a short amount of time for general discussion, If anybody what you would like to uh, raise any points, I'd just like to say perhaps one thing, and that is that in the history of taxation as a whole, there's a strong emphasis on what tax taxes used for, uh, what are the public goods which are supplied with tax collected, uh, and this is especially important in terms of justification of tax that any government which takes your money is meant to show that it's using your money for something that you need. So when you know, this government here uses it to replace the trident nuclear submarine, I feel pretty pissed off. And this this problem of of how, how money is actually used, I think what's quite interesting about this book is that it doesn't really come out much. And I think it comes back to what Philip was talking about, the fact that taxpayers didn't understand what the hell was going on. This was just an external imposition not something that they could logically relate to.
1: I may add just one thing here. This is about the rules of the game that they keep that they keep changing. Uh, laws are put into place. Laws like local decrees basically made by the colonial governments to establish what the rules are of tax extraction. So they'll talk about the methods, when you should do it how you enroll these huts, then how you get the money out, and how the money then after that is distributed, etc., etc. How you work with the chiefs, how you work with the Sipayus, the, the, the guards, etc. And there are always sections on what the criteria are for tax extraction. Now, what is so interesting is this is the difference between the laws and practice. What we found is that while the laws said, for example, that the criterion for extraction was, let's say, uh, the number of people living in the household. This is the head of household, usually a man, and then the number of wives he has, and then etc. etc. Um, that then could easily be changed in practice by just counting the beds, for example, or the number of compartments in the house. Now, now, this was important because as soon as they began to realize that some criteria were being used and that they knew which ones were being used, because they didn't know the law, of course, they didn't read the decree, they only know when the tax collector comes along what he's supposed to look at. Then, of course, they reduced the number of beds in, in their houses. They reduced the number of compartments in the houses. This is referred to various times. In fact, the whole archi- internal architecture of houses changes because of that. People begin to understand that having different compartments in the house is not good. And then what happens, very interestingly, the house becomes bigger in terms of its internal divisions. And there are hard, hardly any. And then administrators begin to complain about that people are living in kind of scandalous forms of concubinage yeah. in a house without different compartments, which they think is, is really morally reprehensible. So, I mean, it it... it in, in, in practice, of course, for these families, it's not a funny issue. It, it's not fun at all. But they could not always anticipate what the tax enroller and collector was going to look at. And in order to make life difficult for people and to raise the amount of taxes was taken out, these rules were constantly changed. And this is to do with their meaning issue. Then, then how do you understand what the criteria are for tax extraction when, for example, in one area... Uh, this will be the rule, and another area next door, another will be the rule. So people will often opt for, ah, if this administrator, Chef de does this, maybe I should go next door and see if the other one who doesn't do it, maybe I'm better off there, right? So it it, it was a very complex game. But also this question of meaning, of understanding why taxes are raised, clearly by the 1930s when Golfo comes in and other reports come in, people don't understand it anymore. And, and this is not a good basis, of course, for taxpayers paying the taxes. I mean, there must be a consensus. Somewhere. Anyway. It's also true in England, of course, we was
0: window
4: tax. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. May I ask a question? Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, I was interested uh, in knowing if you see that there is any like continuity in relation to the pre colonial period, because ethnographies on the central highlands of Angola, mainly, they mentioned that, like, not taxes, but that people used to pay tribute Mm -hmm. to the chiefs. So I was wondering if there is any kind of overlapping there and if the Sobas, like, resorted to this sort of previous practice in their relation with the...
1: That's a very interesting point. Indeed, in in the archives... um, Some very interesting stuff comes up about this. One is that these fiscalists, these fiscal experts I was talking about, I mean, there's a question of justification, which we were talking about. What is then the justification for paying taxes to a colonial government? Now, one of the arguments used by these fiscal experts and by quite a few um, policymakers was that the tribute that peasants, peasants, they're called peasants, but farmers, had to pay to their chiefs it was arbitrary that the chief ex- chiefs explored the farmers their subjects uh, in a scandalous way and that therefore a colonial government would not do that and would allow for a just way of paying taxation. Secondly, as William said, what then do they get back for it? I mean the chief doesn't provide any services, right? The chief gets tribute usually in the form of labor for example, they have to work the land of the chief during a certain period of time and the harvests, the results, the crops and that, that come from that are then given to the chief. That's kind of chiefly land, right? And and that was an, an agreed practice in, in many cases, in many societies. So, I mean, um, this was then seen by colonial over- overlords as exploitation and said that shouldn't be the case and they, in fact tried to stop these practices. Now the question is: here is did these practices continue after the colonial period came into place when they already had to pay taxes to uh, the colonial overlords, did they also still have to perform these duties? Yes they did, in, in many cases they did. So they were kind of doing a double thing, a double act. They had to one, perform their responsibilities, their Obligation in ethnic community sense, and in the second instance, they had to pay taxes. There's one difference, though. The colonial tax was supposedly in money, which is what 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 Mayer was talking about. The idea is that you you, you monetize the economy, you force people into um, per, per, performing all kinds of 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 labor contracts, etc. Um, but the the justification, therefore, which was We are going to put in a just system of taxation. Now, clearly, practice showed that that was not the case. Right? There was a lot of arbitrariness in this taxation. So, yes, um, I think that the fact, as Maylan also talked about, that the collaboration of these chiefs was very important um, in order to get the taxes out. Now, what was the compensation for the chiefs? The chiefs were basically the lowest rung of administration. It is not the chief to the lowest rung. Or the lowest, lowest rung would then be the guards. The guards led under the, in the administration itself, right? But basically the administration relied on these chiefs and especially after 1933 on the village heads, more so than the overall big paramount chiefs. Um, the chiefs got a percentage. And the chiefs began to see the percentage as a source of normal income. So that percentage varied. Uh, sometimes administrators didn't give them the money because they thought the chief hadn't done a good job and they didn't get the percentage. If, for example, the administrator got 5%, then the chief could get 2 of the total amount. But how did the chief know what the total amount was? They didn't. So w- what you get in these inspection reports, for example, is the chiefs complaining about the fact that they're not getting their share. And they're saying, you know, in the past I got my uniform, but now I don't get my uniform. Something wrong. We would like some insignia that, that allows us to distinguish ourselves and that shows that our services are recognized. So there was also much discontent among these chiefs for them being used in order to uh, get the taxes out, and the consequence of that was then that often the chiefs warned people because they knew through the administrator when the tax collector would be coming along, and suddenly these people, especially the male population, would have left the village and they weren't there to pay. They they kind of disappeared, and then it would reappear later. So I mean, this is also a form of kind of resistance of the chiefs to kind of basically feel that they got a bad deal. But there is this continuity, yes.
2: There's one, (coughs) in in Mozambique, and I imagine in the other colonies, um, there was a form of unpaid um, forced labor for the state called Shibala. Um, This was justified on on the grounds that previously chiefs had demanded unpaid labor from um, their subjects and now the colonial state was simply taking over a traditional practice. Mm. Believe it or not, as you like. but <laughs> that, also, that was the yeah.
0: excuse used. It's also true that early mission stations very often take over a lot of these functions. It's quite I mean, By the till 20s and 30s, that's not so clear. But, but in the sort of late 19th century, there was this sense that they are the new chiefs, you know, that mm. labour services and the school children were expected to work physically and, the rest of it. So there is quite an interesting set of sort of civil society encroachments on the on the ability of the states to extract. And I think, I mean, the whole kind of theocracy side of these missions is actually quite interesting in its own right. Mean, this doesn't come much in your book, does it? No,
1: I don't think missions are mentioned in great detail in the book, but they do play a role because indeed missionaries knew these communities very well. And they had a very different relation with the communities, and the missions the missionaries in a recent interview I noticed that again with the former administrator were not regarded as a very positive influence by the administrators didn 't like them at all. They may all have been Catholic in name, certainly the missionaries were Catholics, but they didn 't really appreciate their their meddling in local affairs because the missionaries had a kind of hotline with the locals that the administrative course and the chef de post did not have.
0: The missionaries also had a hotline to the um, superior authorities which yes.
1: the
3: <laughs> chef de post also disliked <laughs> very strongly. <laughs> yes? Yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah. And I think in addition <clears throat> to what Prof said, was trying to throw more light on the question you asked. I want to also use uh, Nigeria as a test of the to, to tell to inform you that during the pre-colonial period, particularly in the northern part of Nigeria, the people there pay taxes to the chiefs, and they look at it as an obligation You know, for them to pay tax. It, it, they also look, look at that as a sign of respect to the state. You know? mm-hmm. So it was a very, it, it continued. And that is why the British found it very interesting when they came to the northern part of Nigeria to work with it the Northern Chiefs in the area of tax collection. And in fact, uh, Kano province became one of the richest uh, province because of the taxes that were collected there, you know, from there, because the chiefs were able to organize the collection of taxes and so on. And then coming back to what I wanted to say initially, is I want to say that, you know, the book has really (laughs) opened my eyes, you know, because it has raised, very critical issue of colonial interest you know which is having a direct bearing you know on, on on post-colonial administration today and uh, but the contradiction is that in some part of Nigeria for example people vehemently resisted paying taxes for my area where I come from central Nigeria I' from the Chief side people vehemently resisted tax payment of tax and also in 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 in, uh, in, in some state, in some areas in the eastern part of, of Nigeria. But the contradiction is that in the post-colonial Nigeria today, many local governments are surviving because of tax taxation. And again, people are now beginning to raise the issue of why collect the tax when you don't use the money for anything meaningful mm-hmm. for the people to see. And mm-hmm. it is raising a lot of issues you know today concerning uh, taxation
1: in Nigeria
3: so I find it very interesting prof, and I have learned a lot of things today, thank you
1: thanks, um, but um, I may add on to it it's, it's what indeed did people expect one thing is whether they understand the way they're taxed, another thing is whether they realise what the taxation is for And and here we come to a very interesting issue which I haven't uh, talked about yet which is in the book this is the surcharge because one, you have the basic tax which then can be quite arbitrary as, as, as we know it can vary from area to area the methods applied, the criteria can be different that's one thing and secondly, there will be the surcharge because why? where does this surcharge come from? in all colonial systems the surcharges were introduced and what were they for? They were usually stopgaps in order to avoid budgetary problems, because they all had budgetary problems. If, for example, the revenue from the normal hut tax or personal tax was falling because you couldn't get the taxpayers in because they were evading taxes, etc., then, of course, you had to find another way of getting some money in. Now, one thing they did was the surcharge. This is surcharge, a percentage on top of the hut or personal tax. But, of course, it's not as if... The colonial authorities would then explain what the surcharge exactly was about, but it became a completely common practice, certainly from the 20s onward in Portuguese areas, in Portuguese colonial areas, that they would introduce these surcharges. And the surcharges could be anything like 10, 15, 20 percent on top of the normal tax rate. Now, what was that money exactly used for? As I said, it was a stopgap issue. Um, there was also another question is that the services which if local taxpayers would have understood what taxes were for in the sense of there being some kind of uh, some kind of counterpart to paying taxes you get something back for it some benefit if they had understood that they would probably wonder why then that the surcharges would be used in order to pay for services which they hadn't received so far, but would then receive the surcharge. For example, health services. Because these health services, which were basically indigenous health services, which kind of set up in a more serious way in the twenties and thirties, had to be financed. But they were financed through this surcharge. So, I mean, they had to pay for a service which in if they would have understood, this is the question, how it's understood what the taxes were for they probably would have presumed that that was included in the package yes, because then of course the difference between the tribute they paid to a chief in kind or in in other forms or to the colonial overlords, is about the same thing because it is a tribute and this comes through in the literature in the 1910s 20s and 30s, it is seen as a tribute which they're expected to pay to the colonial overlords just for them being natives in the colony, right? Which is but the same idea as you would have to pay a tax to the chief because you are part, you are subject of the chief, right? The
0: but the ultimate point, I mean, the first and most basic thing about taxation is it provides security, and that's the idea. And the colonial regime certainly pushed quite strongly the idea of providing security. Of course, the post-colonial experience of many African states is that they cease to pay taxes, but they also cease to get insecurity. security, yes. and total chaos uh, is often the result of independence. So I think you want to be a little bit... I mean, it's still interesting to know whether that security function of tax is understood. In, I think in the old pre-colonial system, it was perhaps more a protection racket than exactly the provision of generalised security, but under colonialism, <coughs> I think you can argue for generalised security. I think that is actually a, a possible argument. The question is how, f- how effectively a colonial state solved that, or how effectively it portrayed itself as doing that. And that I don't know. But I think if you look at the period just before independence, just after independence, it's actually quite interesting that, that people are saying, just before independence, what is the point of a colonial regime? But after independence, they're suddenly saying, hang on, that was a really important point the colonial regime, and that was peace. And you know, it's tremendously politically incorrect to say that, but in fact, I think the experience of a lot of Africa has been that.
2: Mm.
4: Sorry, I had a um, question. So I just introduced myself. My name is Meera. I'm a lecturer in the politics department. I'm not a historian by by training. So actually, my question is about um, the sources that you use, because I'm curious about um, the sources for, for developing this understanding of what's going on in the ground, as as you say, the paper trail is full of misdirection and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, part of my question is, you know, how can we understand... A part, so I get that there's reports by these inspectors, but in before the inspectors kick in, what are the sources for understanding what's going on on the ground level if we can't really trust mm-hmm. the... And then the second part is to follow up on on William's point, um, and the question of how the population perceives security, because if in a lot of Portuguese Africa there was very little, if any, administrative occupation, or sort of functional occupation, is it, I mean, is it plausible to suggest that Africans living in Portuguese Africa could have, Reasonably, come to the conclusion that the, you know that the colonial administration was about security. If it was so ineffectively occupied, I mean, I can see how one might make that case for um, more integrated parts and where the colonial edifice was stronger. But I wonder about the the rural areas where it was mm-hmm. barely there to begin with.
1: To the first point, um, yes, I mentioned the inspection reports for a reason, of course, because. They give you a view which is very difficult to get from other sources right and these usually are metropolitan inspectors but with a lot of experience in African colonies they, they know them they've been administrators and some of them were also governors mm. so they, they some in fact some inspectors curious enough when they're in the colony assume the role of of kind of interim governor when the governor had left so I mean there is a kind of crossover so the, these reports I And how did I come there, by the way? I must tell you, because it was a a Portuguese administrator in Guinea, in in Portuguese Guinea, Edwino Brito, who at some point, he's died, died many years ago, who was caught at some point through an inspection because he was selling false IDs and gaining some money on the side. And he told me that, you know, you should look at the inspection reports. They are very important they got me into trouble but there's a lot of information there which could be useful for you and and it was basically him who got me onto it and and then of course I found this enormous amount of information now the inspection reports are finally accessible, they weren't many years ago but this question of the other documents now I haven't really talked about that but that that is a serious problem in the Portuguese case um, I know for a fact that in when going to the archives, let's say in Aix-en-Provence, I can find the administrators' reports from certain districts with great ease, let's say in Senegal or something, or, or, in, or in Ivory Coast and stuff like that. No problem. In the Portuguese case, you can't. It's very, very, very difficult. The, the colonial archives in Lisbon do not contain many reports, most of the reports, that administrators ever produced. And certainly the chefs, the post, you can, you can't find them there. There are a few, one I quote in, in my chapter here, there are a few reports by administrators which found their way into the colonial archives. Now, then you would say, okay, then they must be in the local archives, which are still there, of course, let's say in Luanda, in, in, in Maputo, or, or in Bissau. Um not no not easy to find either i mean um my colleagues have been looking in the angolan uh, archives for example and it's been very difficult to find them and what is very interesting is that if if we could only find those we would have a better idea what was going on in these local rural especially rural areas so i mean that is one part which is very difficult but Alex, uh, for example, talks about in his chapter, as, as Malin says, trying to find out what exactly was going on in practice, and he managed to trace through. Uh, he,
2: he finds quite a lot. He
1: finds quite a lot, yes, yes. But it is—it takes you a long time to get there. It is not easy. And what is interesting is that another component would be, for example, the governors' reports. Now, then, the inspection comes in again here, because why? In the 1930s, the inspection begins to complain that they can't find governors' reports, that governors do not submit their reports. This begins then to, to make you think whether these reports that supposedly should have been coming in regularly really did. Right? For one, for example, the chef's deporte would report to the administrator, then the administrator would report to the cent- to central government or to the provincial authorities, and then it would trickle through. The question is whether that happened on a regular basis. Um, judging by what I read in the inspection report, that may not have happened on a regular basis because they had lack of personnel too, right? So I think there are, there's a lot of hiatus here in terms of, of reporting. And as Galvão and others said, there's a lot of copying too in terms of reporting. The same reports appear again and again. But, for example, on in on many colonies, on these three, Mo- Mozambique and Golan, Mozambique, it is very hard, for example, to get... A, chron- a, a chronological sequence of yearly reports of governors in order to use them for getting, checking the data, cross-checking the data. Um, there, there are enormous parts of the archives which haven't even been properly inventorised um, uh, in, and classified. And, and it is very hard, for example, through what we know from uh, in inventories to know what's in there because they basically copied the labels on, on the boxes that were in the colonial ministry and then, yeah, a lot is left out so I made a deal with them at some point that I would have access to boxes which had not been inventorized in order to look what was in there and it, it, then I told them what was in there quite, in quite a detailed fashion and I found wonderful treasures there but there's a lot more, of course, clearly so, I mean, this paper trail is, is a problem Right. It's, it's, we, it's going to take a long time maybe before we can reconstruct this properly, certainly in these earlier periods, later periods is a bit easier and then of course another question that I didn't mention is the wars, the colonial wars from 1961 onwards, that in, creates a different kind of issue because then you have a number of paper trails at the same time, right, your second question
4: Oh, it was really just a thought about um
1: the security well, how much security well, there was
4: Well, I mean, and maybe to put a more cynical spin on it if you're living in the rural areas of Portuguese East Africa, you're essentially not realising any of the benefits of taxation, it's essentially a system of predation as far as you can mm-hmm. see so I'm, I'm just suggesting that mm-hmm. as an alternative Yes,
1: um, I, I think we have to come into what Malin said an important point about the guards I, I think that is a very interesting point I, I already published one article about it, about Guinea, about these guards and how they operated Uh, in fact I found at some point that in some districts guards controlled them there was no administrator controlling them, neither a chef de force he wasn't there Um, and so about security you may be talking about great insecurity here in terms of these guards basically acting on their own they had their own interests at heart and they collected all kinds of fines and fees and license stuff and all that from these local populations, whenever um, they they felt the need and whenever they could. Nevertheless, I mean, my own work on southern Angola does
0: show that the level of bandit violence is repressed, that bandit lairs are destroyed, that the amount of stealing cattle, in particular, which is extremely important, does go down. So it's true that the would actually, you know, mix some cattle from time to time, but the levels of violence do de- decline very, very considerably. And whatever else the colonial state did or didn't do, it did actually lessen the amount
2: of day-to-day violence. Yeah. There's one thing about the paper trail. Um, it's very significant that it, in the Portuguese world, um, private papers are very difficult to find. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas in, in Britain, yeah. the private correspondence, private diaries, private papers of district commissioners. Uh, have been collected, many of them have been used. But there is no comparable material in the Portuguese world that I know of. And I just don't doing. think private archives really?
0: exist. When it does exist, they won't let you see it. I mean, the material papers, for instance, they won't yeah. let me see them. But yeah. there are the papers uh, by Protestant missionaries. Sorry?
4: There are papers by
0: Protestant missionaries. Sometimes.
3: Yes. Yes.
2: yes. 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 And true. these are the personal
0: ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right, well, we've uh, rather overstayed our, our welcome. I think we're likely to be thrown out by a guard. We'll <laughs> <quite a> U- <laughs> command attack. So thank you very much indeed, and good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you.